Hello and welcome to this first event of this year's ECHOSOC, focusing on the critical issue of protecting people from sexual exploitation and abuse in humanitarian settings. On behalf of the sponsors of today's event, OCHA, the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, Air Global, CAFOD, the Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response, UNICEF and World Vision, I'm delighted to welcome you to this event. I'm Sarsha O'Callaghan, I'm the Director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, and I'm your host for today. I don't think I need to remind anyone why protecting people from sexual exploitation and abuse is such an important topic. And over the past decade, we have seen important attention, and more importantly, a series of ambitious commitments on this agenda. But writing today in a new Humanitarian Practice Network publication on PSEA and sexual harassment, which we've just, for, just launched, Martin Griffith states that efforts to prevent this happening and to protect those affected have neither been timely, consistent, nor sufficient. In the same publication, which features 13 other case studies and perspectives, experts from across DRC, Venezuela, Mozambique and beyond highlight the gap between global commitments and the reality at community level, where too often there is a wholesale lack of accountability to those affected. And others speak that when abuse happens too often, protecting the reputation of humanitarian organisation rather than the rights and needs of survivors is at the centre of our efforts and our interests. It's clear that we have a long way to go. So today we have a range of national and international experts in the room and online to discuss these important issues and I'm delighted to introduce them to you. First we'll hear from Wendy Q, who is a Senior Coordinator for PSEA at the ISC Secretariat in Okja. Therese Mema Mapenzi, who is the Director of the Centre Olame in Bukavu, is joining us from DRC. Katie Weplow, who is a child protection specialist and a technical lead on PSEA at UNICEF, is joining us in the room. And Anne-Marie Connor, who is the special advisor to the ISC champion on PSEA and um, prevention of sexual harassment, um, joins us from World Vision International. So just a quick note in terms of, of format. We'll hear first from the panel, um, and then we're going to turn to a few audience members for reactions before opening up for Q&A. I can see already that we've got a large number of people joining us online, and I know the session before ours is running a little bit over, so I'm sure people are still joining in the room. Um, but we've got a lot of people here today, and we want to make this participatory as, as possible. And this is a true hybrid event, so Wendy Q will take questions in the room. And if you want to ask a question, please just press on the button on the microphone and Wendy will um, come to as many people as possible. And for online participants, please type your questions in the Q&A box. And you can find this by going to the bottom right of your screen where you'll find the, the, the Q&A um, uh, section. Um, and you can also find there the live captioning uh, by clicking um, on multimedia and this will open a separate tab in your browser where you'll be able to access the captions. So I'm going to turn now to you, Wendy. Um, 
First of all, to ask you, there's been a lot of progress since the first ISC review on PSEA over a decade ago. So how far have we come um, on key priorities and what remains? And how important do you see the new collective IASC strategy being? Thanks so much, Sorsha. And just to tell those of you in the room, there's about 70 people online, so we are uh, more than what we see here in the room. I just want to say that I think that there has been progress. However, I also think it's a fallacy to think of progress as linear. I think that PSEA is one of those issues that we need to recognize as an area that requires continued efforts, continued investments, and should also evolve as humanitarian action evolves. The way we deliver humanitarian action has changed. We're doing more cash transfers. We're also working with different partners, more local partners. And this is shifting the, the risk, uh, risk factors. And so we need to reflect on how we also modify and adopt some of our PSE activities to make sure we're, we're addressing those risks. I'm also hopeful that with the new uh, generation of humanitarian workers, we'll have um, a workforce culture that has been attuned to some of the um, culture changes that have been fostered by the Me Too and A2 movements. And I think there's a couple articles in the latest magazine that you know, pushes us to think about those perspectives. You know, we've identified hierarchy in an organization as a problem um, in terms of power differentials and uh, gender parity, and yet we're, we have responded with more top-down approaches and rules and regulations that need monitoring and enforcement. That being said, I think we can point to a greater professionalization of the humanitarian action. This includes um, how we've codified the tenets of protection from sexual exploitation and abuse, um, revising our six core principles that lay out what is unacceptable behavior. And in 2018, with the efforts of our champions, UNICEF, UNHCR, um, um, in 2018, and then adopted again by the 2021 champion, UNFPA, and, and now with Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response, we have a, a common vision, and that's a vision of a humanitarian environment where people caught up in crisis can feel safe, respected, and access the protection assistance they need without fear of sexual exploitation or abuse, and that aid workers themselves are respected, empowered, to deliver assistance free from sexual harassment. A few years ago, we were unable to articulate uh, which efforts were working and which efforts merit greater investment. And this is why we commissioned another review which informs our new ISC strategy. Um, and this has led to articulation of commitments around three main areas. And the first is really moving from reputational risk management to understanding that protecting victims from harm is the, the first and foremost priority. And we'll hear more from Anne-Marie about this a little later. The second commitment is about promoting lasting change in organizational behavior, culture, and attitudes um, against all forms of, of uh, sexual misconduct in humanitarian organizations. And the third commitment is to support country capacity in prioritizing identified, identified high-risk contexts and ensuring that there is capacity um, for protection from sexual exploitation and abuse in the onset of a response to a crisis. Um, and I just want to um, leave, end my thoughts, because um, I know we have a lot to cover in this panel, with uh, borrowings from some language from foreign policy. So in foreign policy, we think of deterrence as a defensive uh, way. It's kind of a waiting game. The opponent has to move before we react. Um, whereas compellence is we persuade the opponent to change his or her behavior. And I think in PSEA, we also need to move from a defensive posture uh, towards um, attention to a kind of soft power, looking at how we change our organizational culture. We, have, we embrace these diverse teams in an open uh, culture. Um, people, we're hiring people that share our values and our vision um, in order to adopt this new strategy. I'll stop there, and I think we'll come back to some other points later in the, in the panel.
Back to you, Sarsha. Thanks, Wendy. That's really helpful and really clear. Doris, I'd like to turn to you. Actually, sorry. No, we're going to turn next to Anne Marie. First of all, and you've um, you were highlighted as well by Wendy. So, Anne Marie, perhaps you could talk to us a little first about the remaining barriers. I know one of the challenges that you highlight a lot is this issue of reporting. What do you think can be done to transform the humanitarian culture in the way that Wendy is describing into one that's more transparent and more proactive in terms of the problems that it's facing? Thank you, Sorcha. In 2022, the IASC uh, PSCA champion, Andrew Morley, who is World Vision's president and CEO, as well as chair for the SCHR, has three key priorities. Uh, these are aligned with the wider IASC strategy that Wendy referenced. I'm going to focus on the third uh, priority, which is aligned with commitment to around culture change. The IASC uh, external review identified the critical importance of a sustained focus on changing the culture of the humanitarian sector. The IAC principles agreed that one of our championship priorities would focus on culture change, specifically ensuring that the sector actively evidences a zero tolerance approach for inaction on SEA. Too often, humanitarians assume abuse is not happening unless we have reports to the contrary. This justifies a minimal level of preventive action, particularly when humanitarian organizations are stretched to deliver life-saving aid across multiple crises. In the past, such relative inaction has been justified by the low number of abuse reports received globally. However, to drive culture change that we think is necessary, we collectively need to recognize that unfortunately, uh, abuse is universal. It happens in every society from the most to the least developed. And in times of war and displacement, the extreme gender and power imbalances between those receiving and providing aid make it extremely likely that this will occur in large humanitarian responses. A key, though inadvertent, flaw in our approach to date has been a collective reliance on victims, survivors, overwhelmingly women, to drive accountability. Despite being some of the least powerful individuals in humanitarian contexts, we have expected them not only to survive abuse, but also to report what they have experienced or witnessed. We know, and the Me Too and the Aid Too movements that Wendy also referenced, um, have explicitly told us the barriers to reporting are significant, and all the more so for the most vulnerable among us. So we know, therefore, that reports represent only a the tip of the iceberg, and that most cases of exploitation and abuse, like other forms of gender-based violence, go underreported. So we have to assume that no reports is an issue in and of itself. Moving forward, humanitarians must assume that even with safeguards and preventative measures in place, abuse will continue to happen, that underreporting exists, and therefore implement vigorous and proactive prevention and detection and I'll speak more about what those uh, detection methods look like in my follow-up comments. Thank you. Thanks very much, Anne-Marie. Therese, can I move to you now? We've heard a lot about um, global commitments, work at the IASC level, um, and collective efforts. I'm wondering if we can um, bring it to the country reality. Um, you're working a lot on this agenda in Bukavu. 
Um, what do you see as the top three priorities for strengthening um, PSEA and DRC? Thank you for the floor. According to me, uh, the most priority is to provide sustainable and regular training as well as awareness on the PCA policy to both local and national organization staff and also help them to put this into practice because in many times we have many people, many organizations who are, have been trained, but unfortunately this is only a condition to access to funding and partnership agreements. But they don't put this policy into action. The vast majority of the staff from both local and international organization just uh, have the theory of the policy, but they don't put it in, into practice. The second, we also need to train and to inform the project participants as well as the stakeholders about the safeguarding policy and how they can raise complaint or concern if any case occurs. Because the survivors are really at the center of all the action that we are implementing. And many humanitarian organizations, especially in the grassroots level, just not inform really uh, the survivors how they need to pursue and how they can deal with denunciation. And uh, the last priority for me is to establish a long-term funding and partnership to more effectively disseminate and to put into practice the TSA commitments because at the national and international levels, people receive this training, but there is no guarantee to the, the survivors to go to justice, to be willing to, to be well assisted. So although the, 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 the projects are there for six months or 12 months, but when, for instance, after the project, a survivor wants to go to justice, or to denounce any case, the contract of the staff who have abused on the survivor is already ended. So we need to work on long-term contract, contracts that can help survivors continue to go to denounce and to change the attitudes towards these policies and to put them into practice. So these are the most priorities that I have in mind and they result from the the research that we have done in uh, from March and to, to May. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Therese. Can I turn now to you, Katie? Um, you've been the technical lead in UNICEF, and I'm wondering, just drawing on what you've heard from Therese about you know, there being a lot of policy, but it's not put into practice, and there's still a huge issue around survivor accountability and, and justice. What lessons can we draw from your experience and from UNICEF's experience in scaling up um, attention and effort on PSEA? Thanks very much, Sorsha, and good morning, good afternoon to all the colleagues online and in the room. Um, I convey the regrets of Cornelius for his inability to be here, and I'm speaking on his behalf. Um, as some of you may know, in 2018, UNICEF both undertook an external review on its own PSEA work and also invested $21.6 million 
across 31 country offices in six regions to scale up PSEA. So I'd like to highlight a few of the approaches that we took in being able to scale up that work and also some of the lessons that we've learned, specifically some of the data points, because we're really looking at how to strengthen an evidence base around this work. So firstly, PSEA speaks to the core of our work as UNICEF, um, not only because it's about due diligence, but it's also about protecting women and children from violence, including sexual exploitation abuse by humanitarian workers. In terms of the approach that we took to scaling up PSEA, really from 2018 to 2021, we first of all adopted a results-based approach, outlining court outcomes on scaling up safe and accessible reporting, survivor-centered assistance, and strengthening accountability, as well as obviously the ongoing work around, for example, SEA risk assessment, partner capacity development, et cetera. But the point was to really shift to an overall systems lens and focusing on the systems in place at the country level. And then tied with that, was outlined in a set of core outputs that we could track and measure over time. To maximize innovation, we fostered collaboration and shared learning across regions and countries, knowing that the global guidance was not always in place. So it was really looking at what the key learnings from the field could be cultivated in order to, first of all, accelerate the progress in shared learning, as well as to inform global approaches. And then finally, in terms of our approach, we tied UNICEF country offices' internal results to achievement of interagency PSEA commitments, so that we were directing our internal resources towards having an impact on the overall protective environment for women and children. So based on this, what are some of the key things that we've learned? I'll highlight five short points. First of all, investing in systems centered around women and children strengthens trust. This is something that we may talk about often, but the data backs this up in terms of what we found. For example, from 2017 to 2022, we scaled up our community-based reporting channels for women and children to reach 61 million people, a tenfold increase from 2017. We saw a parallel increase over this same time period of the number of reports sent to, through uni, those UNICEF channels, a fourfold increase over that same time period. That tells us that investing in systems around reporting leads to increased trust and reports. 89% of those allegations reported through UNICEF came through the country offices that had received the dedicated funds. Secondly, a holistic victim-centered approach is critical. We know that community-based reporting is an important entry point, but as Therese and other colleagues have highlighted, the provision of assistance is also fundamental, which is why we worked with a number of other colleagues to take forward the UN protocol on the provision of assistance to victims of SCA and have supported country teams to roll this out. Since 2017, the number of countries with Dedicated procedures that outline victim assistance and a victim-centered approach has increased fourfold. This is a significant improvement. At the same time, we see ongoing challenges with making sure that those principles are operationalized at the local level beyond the capital cities where interagency PSA networks might be present. Third, robust internal systems have to go hand in hand with programming. And this was one of the points that I think Therese mentioned. What we know is that through the rollout of the UN Implementing Partner Protocol, for example, those requirements do mean that all entities need to have in place basic systems to prevent and respond to SCA. But those systems must be informed by good practice programming on child protection and gender-based violence. Otherwise, they won't meet the needs of the communities at the local level. And finally, 
What we've learned and that we already know is that no single agency can do this work alone. As UNICEF, we work closely with a broad range of partners, UN sister agencies, the broader UN system, our um, NGO partners, local entities, but one of the things that we've learned through this work is that we also need to recognize governments as key stakeholders in this agenda. This was one of the lessons learned in DRC, and we know that we need to look at how to strengthen cooperation with governments as key stakeholders. This is one of the areas of work that we're taking forward. Thanks so much. Thanks, that's great. Um, I'm going to turn back to you, Anne-Marie. Um, you're um, working as the special advisor to the ISE champion on PSEAH and World Vision. Could you talk us through a little bit um, some of the ISE championship priorities, please? Sure. Thanks, Sorcha. What I'd like to do here is um, focus a bit on how um, we can encourage reporting of um, SEA allegations. In 2021, World Vision International conducted a lessons learned process to identify the strengths and areas of improvement for safeguarding reporting, particularly in programs in fragile contexts or during large emergency responses. In order to increase reporting, the sector needs to do a few things much more proactively. First of all, leaders, accountability, monitoring and evaluation team, along with their safeguarding and PSEA specialists, should flag instances of little or no reporting to determine whether an organization should conduct proactive targeted inquiries to detect and enable reporting of safeguarding violations. Essentially, if you have a large humanitarian response with no um, SEA allegations, unfortunately, it means you have a reporting issue. It's just not realistic. They should identify and collaborate with survivor-focused partners and service providers to conduct detection outreach and so enable communities to report safeguarding violations and support managers to identify moments in the programming cycle for proactive detection discussion on safeguarding violations. It's also essential to introduce spot checks during field visits, whether by calling in test complaints to ensure systems are working or by discussing with community leaders their understanding of SEA and how to report to ensure fulfillment of safeguarding focal point and field responsibilities. Spot checks ensure that weak systems and abuse are detected at any level. And finally, country teams should set up or participate in interagency teams that proactively engage the community, talk about safeguarding in safe and appropriate ways, ask if violations took place. Some organizations, particularly local women's organizations, will be, the most trust, will be more trusted than others, and interagency work can build on these strengths. Managers should request safeguarding peer reviews or health checks of programming from third parties, whether local women's groups, health clusters, protection clusters, GBV clusters, PSEA networks, as well as faith leaders and community leaders. Thank you. Thanks, Anne-Marie. I'm going to turn back to you now, Katie. You spoke... You spoke about the progress um, within UNICEF, and I'm wondering if we can think a bit more broadly, perhaps, and look at the progress since the first ISC review. 
it's clear that there has been progress and there's still a long way to go. What do you think has been most important and what do you think we should focus on in terms of, you know, seeing where there's opportunities to catalyze change? Thanks so much. I'll highlight two reflections on this question. The first is that the shift towards implementation and a focus around implementation of this agenda at country level has been critical. Um, as Wendy was also noting about this earlier, we've seen very much that if we don't look at how we're gonna actually operationalize the system through putting in place effective systems within our operations, we will fall short on our global commitments. So when our executive director took on the IEC championship from 2018 to 2019, we saw an opportunity to shift the focus towards the field. Prior to that, there had been very good work and helpful work done around establishing minimum operating standards, for example, work on the UN side to look at, you know, how do you um, have a common approach to global policies, but this was really about shifting to focus on how do we better support humanitarian coordinators and humanitarian country teams to be able to put in place those same commitments on the ground. As a result of that shift, we've seen that, for example, the idea of having a standard PSCA action plan has now been adopted system-wide, not only for humanitarian coordinators, but across the entire UN system. In addition, we're doing work around making sure that we have core outcomes and outputs that we're able to be to track and measure. The point there is not just about the data. It's about shifting to saying, you know, we need to move beyond training or capacity development to say, are there identifiable systems in place that women and children can access on the ground. So that's really where the, the shift um, is, is focused. And related to that focus on the field is also looking at deployable capacity. That's very much been a collective effort, um, and I want to appreciate all of the members of the ISC field support team as well as other entities who have deployed staff to make sure that there is coordination on the ground from the outset is the way in which we work going forward. The second point, just very briefly, is a shift towards a holistic approach, and I think I think Anne-Marie also mentioned this in her interventions. If we look historically, the ISC has done um, you know, important work to focus on, for example, complaints mechanisms. There may have been separate work by the gender-based violence AOR, but now the ISC strategy, we're very pleased to see how that brings together a much more holistic approach, recognizing the importance of an end-to-end -end intervention that really looks from the whole trajectory preparedness throughout response while also bringing into um, account the factors around culture change. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, Therese, I'm gonna um, move to you now. We've just heard about the need for collective action. Um, and I'm wondering if you can put this into another context about how national and international actors can work best together on this agenda and how well you think their comparative advantages have been harnessed in, in DRC. Therese, I'll just ask you to unmute yourself again. Yes. I believe that if organization, national and international organizations work together and put their efforts on uh, working to respond to the problems of safeguarding by establishing strong 
organizations that are really available to support the system and to 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 establish proper communication and good con good coordination i think and believe that all things can be helped to contribute to to end the the problems related to sexual abuse because in many cases the problem is when programs come they just come from the international level and force it's like, like uh, bringing the local organization to consume what have been established from the the high level so we need to to take into account the local context what does it say for instance in many communities here in DRC like in many villages where i work people believe that there are some activities that men should only be that some activities that should only be done by men and when a man abuse on on women they think that is like a normal situation so people need to understand that this is not normal this is not it's an abuse and to be aware of what they should denounce and uh, in another problem is that in many cases the families or the people we, we we want to assist the victims are really poor and they have no means to go to justice and when they have no means to go to justice assisted by the organization that have a, a, a limited budget this is very challenging situation because even if they need to go to justice there are no governmental structures that can support them so we need to guarantee the victim that even if they they go to denounce they can have good solution to their problems we also need to to, to guarantee the victim that they will be secured there are many cases where they are afraid to denounce for fear of losing their jobs if they denounce what else what will happen i may lose my job or we are in a context where uh, we are in a post conflict context if i lose my job or if the, the the perpetrator is aware that i denounce what ensure me that i will be protected or if i go to justice what is the compensation that i will get if i lose my job all these are the barriers to on which local and international organizations should work on in order to uh, to to strengthen the policies of safeguarding thank you thanks therese i'm going to finally turn back to you wendy you just come back from Ukraine, if I understand correctly. And it's a context where PSEA systems have been established very much from the outside or the outset of the, the conflict. And what do you think has made a, that possible in this context? And what difference is it um, playing uh, so far in terms of what you're seeing in terms of results? Thanks, Sersha. Um, you know, it was one of the learnings, I think, from the review, which is that there does need to be PSEA capacity at the field level from the outset of, a, of an emergency. And we've seen the leadership uh, also in the refugee response of UNHCR putting dedicated PSEA coordinators in uh, Moldova, Poland, um, and surrounding countries uh, as well, Hungary, I think, and um, Romania. And we've also deployed um, a full-time dedicated PSEA coordinator in Ukraine, thanks to the support of UNFPA. We just recently did uh, um, a visit to the region, very short, but it was it was interesting to see the um, what 
needs to happen um, and the challenges in a context that is relatively well-resourced compared to what we just heard from Therese, these are um, countries that have also national capacity, very high um, uh, capacity of, of uh, uh, you know, the national staff as well. Um, and um, we've seen in Ukraine, they have an e-government app application on their, on their mobile phone where they get information from their government. Um, they can watch TV on their phone. How can we ensure that we're um, sending information to people that are on the move and can reach the right types of information? Um, how can we also work better with national human rights institutions, ombuds, if, those, if people in those countries do find those as credible resources and are willing to report to them and might be less um, inclined to know who the new um, incoming humanitarian actors are. At the same time, we're challenged to be operating in a context where there is still a high degree of gender inequity. As Therese said, when people don't understand what is appropriate uh, response, how to define what is sexual exploitation, even defining what is sexual harassment. Um, um, a lack of recognition um, that there is, uh, that this exists as a problem. And so how can we work across that cultural context and really not just be focused uh, only on uh, what we're doing in terms of humanitarian action, but how can we also contribute to that greater discussion on, on, um, on addressing uh, unwanted sexualized attention um, and, um, and the response and also for, for the women that are affected by the conflict. Um, I just also wanted to, to add a few words about the, the opportunities that the strategy provides building upon um, the latest response um, is that we want to be able to answer the question of are we um, doing enough to prevent? Um, are we engaging appropriately in the communities that we serve to understand how, how to communicate with them and how they understand the concepts that we're, we're, um, we're trying to uphold? Um, is our programming effective? And also if there is a report is the response swift? Um, are perpetrators held to account? Um, are victims and survivors protected in assistance? And with the new strategy, we have a roadmap, we have sequencing, we have a collective commitment for investment, and we have articulated some ambitious targets. It does require sustained investment for us to monitor and see whether we, we reach them. Um, but that's, I think, it's interesting to see with some real-time monitoring, hopefully in the Ukraine context, what we can feed back into the system. Back to you, Sersha. That's great, and it's really interesting. We've just seen one question come in already from Ayuba Imira, who talks about this issue of resourcing, um, and particularly resourcing of local and national NGOs. And before maybe we turn to that question, I'm going to first turn um, to, to, to two people who've been listening online and to get your reactions. First, uh, to you, Alice Castillejo, who is the Programme Development Manager and Programme programmatic PSEAH lead um, for Clear Global. And um, you've been doing research with WHO also in DRC, um, and it focuses on this issue of engaging local communities, but more particularly on survivor-led approaches. Can you talk a little bit more about this and what you think needs to be done to make sure that a survivor-led approach is really prioritized? Thank you, yes. I mean, it's been very interesting listening, and thank, and, it, and thank you for giving us the chance to study. Uh, Therese is obviously right in what she said, that as a sector, we really need to involve communities much more in PSCH in order to make sure we've got relevant and in, in effective interventions based on a better understanding of their risks. So last year, WHO commissioned us to do a survivor-centred review in line with their focus on survivor-centred prevention and response. 
And we found that in Eastern DRC, SEAH reporting and referral mechanisms just largely were not aligned with what survivors' communication needs were, or their safety concerns, and their reliance on survival sex. So, as you've been saying, PSEAH communications are not engaging local organisations and community members. And making PSEAH communication available and accessible is going to be a really critical piece of the puzzle. So when we did the research, it showed us that, that reporting and referral mechanisms were largely not available in DRC. People told us that the hotlines were unavailable in the languages that they spoke, and they often went unanswered. Many women just didn't have access to a phone to use them, and lots of people expressed fear that if they used suggestion boxes, their, their abuser would know who the report came from. The communication material is also geared mostly towards humanitarians rather than towards community members and is focused almost entirely on adult women, excluding girls, men and boys who all experience SEAH. I also wanted to pick up on the point about survivors fearing retaliation or further abuse. With the risks of reporting are often severe and the expected benefits are small. So participants told us that women risk marriage breakdown, girls risk dropping out of school or being forced to marry their abuser. And both women and girls risk not only a direct loss of financial security, but also physical violence from family and other community members who risk losing access to aid. People also don't expect to get justice if they make a report. And many lack the information on what support might be available to them and what will be done to keep them anonymity if they do make a report. And these are really serious concerns that they had. We also need to understand, and we as a sector need to understand and kind of rebalance the risk between, between the benefits and the, the risks that people face uh, in making reports. So going back to the discussion about gender norms, people told us that women's lack of financial independence means that they're unlikely to consider these relationships a form of SEAH or to report them to aid organisations. But all the current communication on SEAH ignores this reality and focuses instead on saying that these relationships are banned. So several humanitarian organisations we interviewed recognised this disconnect and felt that a lot more sensitisation was needed to increase reporting. Both men and women participated, who participated in the study that we did said that increasing women's livelihood options would reduce the pressure to engage in survival sex. We can't communicate effectively about prevention without understanding and addressing the precarious financial situation of the people affected. And that was one of the underlying findings that we have from our research. Thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to contribute. And just to say the report's going to be coming out very soon, published in, in three, at least three different languages. Thank you. Excellent. It sounds really worthwhile. So we'll look out for that. Before we turn to the questions, and I do invite you to put them in the, the, the question box if you're online, and also get ready to put your hand up or to press the button if you're um, in the room, I want to also turn to, to Lebanon. Um, Ulam Goose, you've been um, the PSEA coordinator in Lebanon where you're working there with UNFBA. And um, we've heard a lot about DRC um, and also Ukraine. Um, maybe we can focus a little bit more on Lebanon now and, and in particular your experience of interagency coordination and how you see this in terms of advancing PSEA.
not hearing you. I don't know if you can unmute. Want to give it another try and see if it works? Okay, it looks like we've got a technological problem here. Um, we'll see if um, we can be unmuted in the background. Um, but meanwhile, and we'll come back to you on, on Lebanon if, if um, the technicians can unmute you, Gulam. I'm not hearing anything that they can. So um, we'll maybe park you for a minute um, and we'll turn first um, to the to the floor, Wendy, uh, to you um, in terms of participants there in the room who might be interested to make some contributions or um, to to put some questions to the panel um, and to our other contributors. Questions or statements? Yes. Please introduce yourself and go ahead. Hello, Lindsay Dwarman representing the United States. First, want to just thank you all for the presentations and the insights and for convening this important discussion. The United States has zero tolerance for sexual misconduct of any kind and zero, zero tolerance for inaction in responding to those allegations. This means that we expect our partners to actively take steps to prevent, detect, and respond to incidents of misconduct in a survivor-centered manner while pursuing accountability for perpetrators. Sexual misconduct, including sexual exploitation and abuse, runs counter to our values, causes intolerable harm, and threatens the mission and the integrity of our work. Preventing and addressing sexual misconduct in, in international assistance requires coordination and commitment by the entire aid community. This engagement will ensure consideration for the complexities of varying social norms and expectations, institutional cultures, and legal regimes. The United States will continue to engage with individual organizations implicated in allegations of SEA, but is equally, if not more important, to continue pushing for enhanced PSEA and response measures across the aid community. As noted in USAID's Protection from Sexual Exploitation and Abuse Policy, addressing these issues will require system-wide change, both on the ground as well as across overall operations, including ensuring the presence of PSEA experts across individual agencies and response efforts, and prioritizing SEA prevention and response staffing and resources. It requires us to revisit the way that we do business, to reconsider power dynamics inherent in the development and humanitarian aid system. It also requires us to prioritize bringing the voices of local communities and affected populations at the earliest stage possible, with a particular focus on women and girls as those most vulnerable to SEA. The United States will continue to work towards significant progress on efforts to advance management reforms across UN agencies, including those that enhance accountability to improve humanitarian outcomes for affected populations, including women and girls. In 2020, USAID and the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs launched a community of practice composed of academics, donors, NGOs, aid practitioners, and related organizations regarding employment accountability measures in the international aid community. We continue to urge our 
colleagues to proactively involve women and girls in decision-making, in program design, consult and collaborate with communities in identifying and mitigating risks, and guarantee survivor-centered response and enhance access to safe reporting mechanisms. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Wendy, back to you again to see if there's any more contributions or, or questions from the floor. Otherwise, we've got a number of questions online that we'll also turn to. Thanks. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Um, I don't see any more hands in the room, so I think we can move to the questions online. I see there are several in the Q&A boxes. That's right. So the first one um, that I'd maybe um, like to put to the panel is, first of all, that, um, you know, as we heard, and I think you spoke to as well, Wendy, about how implementing PSEAs is quite expensive. Um, um, and it's especially so uh, for local and national actors who are so critical to reaching those in, in remote locations or, or locations outside of cities, which I think we also heard from um, Anne-Marie was a really important issue. So how do we ensure that there is um, funding for PSAA, and in particular, there's funding that can go to, to local and national actors? So that's question two. That's question one. Um, there's another question that's come in in terms of the role of, of donors. Um, and um, this is how, what more could donors do to encourage reporting and action? And where have you seen strong action from donors um, that has helped made, make progress in terms of PSEA? And then there's a question from Sofia Canobas Pereira, who says that we're always talking about women's organization support, but are we missing men and gender sensitive approaches um, to PSEA? Um, and she's pointing to the fact that in Cox's Bazaar, some of the Rohingya men were not reporting as one of the main reporting spaces were in women gender friendly spaces. And I think this issue of Inclusivity is also something that Alice brought up. And then lastly, um, there is a question um, which I think has also come up, um, and Therese, you've spoken about it, but Alice has also spoken about it, um, in terms of how to, to look at the root causes to transform social norms, whether that's you know, cultural norms within the humanitarian sector, or social norms within crisis settings? How do we actually go further than just reporting um, and go towards transformation? So there's a, a range of different questions there. Um, Therese, I think I'll um, start with you. Um, and this question about, you know, inclusivity. Um, and we heard already, I think, from Alice about the issue of you know, a lot of efforts being focused on adult women um, and that children, teenagers, but also men were being left out. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to this issue um, and your experience um, in, in Bukavu, but also um, whether you've seen any positive um, efforts to include a wider set of uh, survivors um, when we're thinking about PSEA.
Thank you very much for the question. Uh, there is really a need to continue involving the communities and the survivors, the potential survivors of uh, sexual abuse into our programs because when they are, they are aware of what should be done, when they know how to proceed, how to deal with their complaint, this is the first step to encourage them to denounce. And uh, by considering, as Ali said, considering the local cultures, it's also a very good step because in many cultures, people think it's normal that a man can misbehave. And uh, in some of our activities here in Bukavu, we emphasize on uh, positive masculinity. So when we teach men how they can behave, we work with them, we discuss. This requires a lot of time. It's a, it's a matter of dealing with change, the, the, the behavior change. It's not a one-day activity. It's a long process. And we need to talk with all the local cultures, all the contexts, and see what is considered in this aspect of the, the work. How do people consider uh, consider men? How, what is the work of the women? How do they consider women? How do they consider children? And really, this is a very, very issue, which is a, a, an important problem, an important challenge. Sometimes we may come with good ideas. Unfortunately, when it doesn't match with the local context, we don't succeed. By an example, when a child has been abused by her father, but the mother of the child herself protected her husband because considering her culture, she can't go in front of the justice with her husband. And in the same way, the child shouldn't go to justice with her father. So how can we cope with this context? And in this way, this is why I say it's important to strengthen governmental structures. What do they have to do? In the case of DRC, for instance, we have uh, the weak governance system. So we have some authorities working in the justice who used to work as the rebel groups, who were in the army groups, and who are exposed to impunity problems. So how can I encourage a child who has been abused to go in front of the justice where she will see someone playing this role who were a former perpetrator? So in this context, it's really important to take into account each country's context before implementing the safeguarding activities and policy. Thank you. Excellent, thank you. Katie, do you want to come in on this issue as well? I'm sure in UNICEF you've seen a lot of efforts to, I guess, go beyond just um, the experiences of adult women. And I'm also wondering, um, whether you have any thoughts from, from your experience in terms of this issue of, of norm change, culture change you know, within the humanitarian system, but more widely within society as well. Thanks very much. Um, and I think that these points, they, they speak to a lot of the critical reflections that we are looking at in terms of UNICEF's overall approach. 
Um, I'm speaking from the child protection section. So the issues around programming, especially placing women and girls at the center, is the heart of what we um, what we do and what we would what we want to take forward. Um, in terms of just examples of some of those initiatives, we have exciting work in addition to our ongoing child protection and gender-based violence work more broadly to look at, for example, pairing face-to-face community-based interventions that are rooted in our protection programming with, for example, digital tools to look at how to engage women and girls to flag up risks of SCA that they see in their communities so that we can act on them more quickly at the interagency level. So there are a number of initiatives that we are taking forward um, with that kind of approach. But I do want to step back for a minute to the point around sequencing. One of the things that we've seen from our work is that we do need to take into account the risk of do no harm if we work on engaging affected populations without having those necessary internal systems in place. We've seen time and again that while while PSCA or safeguarding training is great and many organizations are taking it forward, that across all of our respective entities, if you ask a staff member or a focal point, what exactly do you do when you receive an allegation? How do you report that in a safe and confidential manner? We still have a number of gaps in that area. Just to give an example, in terms of um, UNICEF's work, we included for the first time a comprehensive enabler indicator in our strategic plan. Sorry for the the UN speak details, but I just want to give an example of this. This requires all country offices to have four key criteria that we would consider an effective system in place. While we have, again, made good progress, three years ago we had no country that met this criteria. To date, we have 128 country offices that are scaling up these systems, but only 53 of those actually meet the required criteria. So that's something that we're very clear on in terms of where we need to go, that all country offices have to be able to move to make sure that those systems are in place, and it's on that basis that then we can scale up our programming for affected populations. So there is an important sequencing. Then just very briefly, I want to give a couple other quick examples to the funding issue, because this again is also very important, and I think one of the questions that we may receive as practitioners is how much funding is actually required. So I just want to give a couple examples based on the analysis that we've done to date. When we rolled out the set our internal uh, resources for PSCA, that of the $21.6 million, that went to $500,000 per country office because we were really looking at how to scale it and use the funding as catalytic. That amount is actually a very small amount of money. When you look at $500,000 over a three-year period, you know, in a very large operation such as you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo and other humanitarian responses that are quite large scale. So while on the one hand, through that catalytic funds, we've been able to reach 61 million women and children at the community level through safe and accessible reporting channels that have been quality checked and we've really tried to drill down on the quality. At the same time, from that number, the number that of women and children who have access in humanitarian settings is only 28 million, and that represents 12% 
of the overall number of people in need across humanitarian settings. So I'm just giving this as an example to illustrate where we've been able to get a lot of mileage out of the funding, but also where we have a lot more to go. And I'm using this as an example, not just about UNICEF, but I think it's also illustrative of the kind of funding and resources that would be required across the board. And so just lastly, I think that there are different discussions around how do we move forward around a comprehensive funding strategy? Part of that looks at how we articulate this issue. Is this, will we achieve our commitments if we just take a due diligence approach? The examples that Therese and others offered, including by, by the colleagues in DRC, illustrate that just you know, complying with requirements is not gonna take us the full way. We have to work through our programming to really engage women and children at the community level. And that also requires articulating this not only as a due diligence issue, but also what we would consider a programmatic issue and looking at how we then join it up. And that I think that understanding would inform how we work together in terms of funding and resourcing going forward. Thanks. Thank you very much. Anne-Marie, I'm going to um, call on you for this issue of, of norm change, and I'm going to be a bit mean pulling a new question that has also come in. Um, and it's it's one, I think, that's come up also in what, some of the articles in the Humanitarian Exchange that I referred to earlier. And this is a question about, I guess, a, a, a tension between national approaches and international approaches. It's something that Alice spoke about in terms of, I guess, there being different perspectives within different societies in terms of what, what constitute harm, but also what are the reasons why people might engage in, um, in risky uh, behaviours for, for money, um, you know, the, the challenges that they face in terms of livelihoods. Um, so Win Tun Ki has mentioned that, um, that there needs to be a soft power approach to culture change. And this is very suitable to address negative local traditions on PSEA, but the international approaches are very strong and prefer to go down a route of, of punishment. Um, and how do you balance, I guess, when you're looking at culture change, perhaps some of the tensions between um, uh, local and national um, cultures and international cultures and also approaches to PSEA? I don't know if you've um, experienced this in your work and can speak to that. Thanks, thanks for the question. Um, and, and I think Alice's uh, comments around uh, their, their study in DRC are, is, is really interesting here um, and, and incredibly helpful um, because it helps us understand that, that our, our, um, what constitutes uh, abuse and, and, and how people perceive abuse is, is, is different. Um, well, I can't speak to, to national approaches. What I, what I can speak to is um, what we as, as leaders can do. Um, and in my experience, and, and I spent the last four years in the DRC as well um, as, as country director for, for World Vision. And in my experience um, working with um, you know, uh, 
500 national staff is that uh, those issues that, that Therese raised around um, concerns around uh, being a whistleblower um, take, um, take a long time to overcome. Um, so, so two things um, that, that I would encourage here is that um, leaders must regularly and repeatedly share and reinforce messaging from the top that an organization has a culture and policy of zero tolerance for any form of sexual misconduct. Organizations must promote awareness among leaders that increased reporting is a sign that systems are working. Um, and dare I say it, celebrate it. Um, when I was a country director, I would, uh, I would, you know, um, I, our, our office had the highest number of um, reports within our World Vision partnership. And I'm not ashamed to say that because it meant that we had the confidence and uh, the ability, um, the confidence of our staff to be able to share reporting. So we need to report it. Uh, we need to reward um, um, reporting when it happens. Um, we need to combat the mistaken belief that reporting is a bad sign in order to support raw, strong, level-headed crisis and incident management. Um, leaders must remember to emphasize the need to report even unconfirmed information. Um, in my experience as a country director, when we speak often and repeatedly about zero tolerance and celebrate and acknowledge reporting, more reporting will occur. Thanks. That's really, really interesting, um, Anne-Marie. Therese, I'm going to come to you now. There's been a number of um, questions, I guess, around tensions between national and international approaches to PSEA and whether there are different approaches um, and how those can be um, brought together. Um, and then there's also been a lot of questions around funding um, and how resources are needed to, um, to actually undertake and to have strong systems for PSEA. And Howard Mullet in the chat has also focused on the fact that local and national actors need core funding in order to have the systems and the resources in place to, to work on this agenda. So I'm wondering if you want to pick up any of these issues um, in terms of your experience. I don't know if you heard that, Therese. No, I, I was lost a little bit, please. So two issues came up. One around money and money mm -hmm. for local and national actors. Yes. And that there needs to be funding for organizations, long-term funding for them to mm -hmm. undertake these efforts. And the second yes. issue, is different ideas between national actors and internationals on PSEA on what works. And I wanted to see if any of those were issues in that you have experienced. Yes, uh, of course, in our area, there is like a, people perceive international organizations the one have the right to coordinate, the one having the right 
the privilege to organize having the budgets and for this i think there is a gap between in terms of relationship between local organizations and international organizations there is the need to put them together to cooperate in order to develop good strategies focusing on local context to see how they can emphasize on the strategies that can fight against these uh, harassment and sexual abuse. But also I was thinking about the, the places where uh, we can, a potential place where we can secure the survivors. Because when they denounce in the context of ours, they are not really safe. They need to leave, for instance, the context and find a place where they can stay for two or one week from the time we are proceeding with uh, the justice. And we spoke about zero tolerance. It's very good. But in which context can we talk about zero tolerance? When I consider the context of ours, in many villages, people have long distance to meet the, the police station. So how can I talk about justice to those people who are far away, although there are so many international and national organizations working there and who are potentially abused on those local people. So they abuse on children, they deal with sexual harassment to, to women, and sometimes they exploit them for sex so that they can get different services. And when we talk to these women and children, they just say, we are very poor. We don't have means to go to justice. I think local organizations and national organizations should sit together, study how they can implement the effective measure to fight sexual harassment and also sexual abuse on children, but also to see how really they can put the strategy of zero tolerance relating to focusing on the, the real context on which they're working. This is really my, my point of view. And considering that I work on the issue and I leave the context, I feel that some of the humanitarian organization seem to have the privilege, having money, having the contracts, which are now sometimes sustainable contracts, although the local organization have maybe two, two months contracts, one year contracts, and this is not really a guarantee. Yeah. Thanks, Therese. Wendy, can you pick up this issue also of, um, of, of funding? Um, we had a question around the role of, of donors, but also funding to, to, to national and local actors. Um, yeah, I guess, how do you see funding playing a role from your point of view? Thanks a lot. Um, I do see that um, we've spoken about the idea we need to partner more with uh, local organizations and some of the policies um, we've put in place in terms of requirements for our partners to be able to comply with a certain PSEA capacity before they're able to enter into those contracts can sometimes be at counter purposes to um, encouraging new partners, and I think that's something we're aware of. 
um, and looking at how we can solve. We've done a specific allocation for community engagement and accountability for affected populations and PSEA activities, and we actually did not get as many um, applications for that funding as we would have liked. Um, in the Ukraine crisis, for example. So it means that we do need to do outreach and partnership to bring along that capacity. I agree with Therese that the, um, some of the way we do humanitarian assistance is not conducive to addressing some of these longer-term issues. We heard from her about the need to, give li to provide livelihood alternatives to, um, to people on the move. When you talk to people on the move, they often ask for jobs and education. That's not what we as humanitarians are well-suited to design programs in response to that. So it, I think that touches upon another theme of the ECOSOC, which is, which is transition and, and working in partnership with some of those longer-term actors. Um, I also feel when you think about the cost of these programs, what is, you know, it's quantifying things that have much longer-term impact. Um, when you think of a victim uh, of any type of sexual um, assault or abuse, um, that if you look at the US CDC, they actually quantify how much uh, a rape costs um, to the victim um, in terms of lost um, Productivity, in a way, if you have to think of it that way, it, it's um, it's quite um, stark. And what we're operating in many contexts where um, victims of gender-based violence, conflict-related sexual violence, there are no services for them. So we've also have to work hand in hand with the GBV community in, in terms of ensuring that there are those services available. And what is you know we are in some places where really there's no referral system at all. Um, so I think the cost. Um, there's specific costs on activities that are directly related to awareness raising, upholding our standards, um, engaging with communities, and also ensuring that we're looking at what, what we're trying to, who we're trying to reach in the humanitarian action um, in terms of prioritizing those responses. Thanks. Thank you very much, Wendy. Um, I'm going to quickly see if we can now bring in Gulam. Um, I'm just trying to turn to you and see if um, the technology is more in our favour. So, Gulam, you're going to tell us about uh, interagency coordination in Lebanon. Yes. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Sosha. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to mention that sexual exploitation and abuse is the threat that we, that we face as a collective. Uh, therefore, collective approaches to how we address it are, are critical. Uh, UNFPA in 2021 uh, led the interagency initiative as a champion and deployed uh, 11 full-time interagency PSCA coordinator for daters in IASC priority countries. And UNFPA continues uh, to support the interagency efforts in this regard and currently expanding the interagency PSCA coordinator roster. With the deployment of the interagency PSCA coordinator, including myself, in the case of Lebanon, we have we have UNCT, HCT common PSCA strategy uh, and to translate its strategic objectives and interagency action plan. We as a collective uh, through interagency approaches have created a pool of SE investigators among the national NGOs to help them conduct policy and timely SE investigations. We as a collective conducted a study to understand the reporting barriers to sexual exploitation and abuse, which in turn informs how we as a collective strengthen complaint and feedback mechanisms. As a mainstreaming approach, we designed SCA risk prevention mitigation measures for the sector. And as a system strengthening approach, we as a collective assessed over 100 implementing partners on PSCA 8 core standards. In addition, uh, we also have a commonly agreed mechanisms of reporting and handling of SE allegations in the context of Lebanon, 
And lastly, uh, you know, to further the knowledge that we have gained at the PCA network level, we recently conducted a TOT and trained 18 new PSEA focal points from the national NGOs, international NGOs, United Nations, and government entities who are now furthering the knowledge uh, in, in, in the deep areas. Uh, so this is something that I can speak of uh, from the interagency perspective, the impact that we have had here in, in, in Lebanon. And before I hand over, I just wanted to also take the opportunity to thank you and also uh, the member states uh, sitting around the table for their continued support for our collective efforts at the, at the country level. Over to you. Excellent, Kulam, and I'm delighted that we could hear from you. And um, we're coming towards the end, and we've heard, a, you know, a raft of different suggestions in terms of how to move forward. Um, and I think what I'd really like to hear, perhaps just a final wrap up from each of our panelists in terms of one key priority that they would like to leave with us um, across all of these different um, agendas and ideas and initiatives. And I maybe turn to, to you first, Katie, um, from your perspective in UNICEF, what would be the one issue that you'd want to leave with us? Thanks so much. Um, I think that, you know, based on the work that we've done to date, I think it's clear that while this is not a new issue, this is something that the humanitarian community has grappled with for decades, that we also know that it's not an intractable issue. It does not have to be endemic to the work that we do. And so I think that perhaps the reflection that I would leave the colleagues with um, is how do we take this work to the next level? Um, there's been a lot of discussion around the overall approach, lessons learned, areas of prioritization, but I think the question around how do we effectively shift the sector to be transformative on this issue is the fundamental question at the time. And a huge sort of central piece of that is around scale. We've there are a number of exciting examples of work that have been done across, um, across the sphere of this agenda, but how do we take that work to scale when we look at the total number of people in need, which if I'm not mistaken is 1.2 billion people. So if we're really talking about safeguarding our investments and keeping people safe across all of our humanitarian response, I think that this is the fundamental question and this is where the question around resourcing is an important strategic discussion that I think we are very keen to have going forward. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. And uh, Therese, I'd like to call on you next. Um, you spoke a lot about survivors and the need for accountability, for justice, for funding for understanding culture. I guess if you wanted to leave us with one priority, what would that be? The priority that I want to leave with us is to establish long-term funding and partnership, which are really more effective to help local and international organizations fight against these issues of sexual abuse and uh, harassments but also um thinking about working about on working on uh, uh, cultural aspects attitudes but also practices because these are really the barrier to help us continue working forward so if we want really to put an end to these issues we should put 
we should establish long-term programs, but also focusing on local attitudes, cultural norms, and practices, because these needs at Niponta's time. And in last, to establish a place, a space where survivors can feel safe to denounce. If really I know what will be uh, the end of my process to justice, I can be encouraged to go to denounce. But if I'm not sure on what will happen after, if I'm not sure to get good reparation, I can't be encouraged to denounce. And many people, especially the women and children, suffer a lot because they don't have this right information. They don't know where to go. And if they denounce, they are not sure on their security. Thank you. Thank you very much, Therese. It's very helpful and, and clear. Uh, Wendy, I'm going to turn to you next. Um, you've been really a, a driving force within the IESC and um, pushing forward on the strategy. Uh, hard to prioritise just one issue, but what would you want to leave us with? Um, I think there's what we've seen is that leaders are accepting now that this is not um, a problem that needs to be solved, but it's a risk that has to be managed. And to really see that PSEA is integral to effective humanitarian action, um, it's not something that's a separate activity. Um, I wanted to just pick up on, on also the think back of what we considered was um, what we saw often like 20 years ago where there were a lot of white cars sitting in front of nightclubs uh, to what um, still happens, which is that we still get spontaneous donations to what we have put in place, which is professional standards. Um, to say that there are areas where we've seen progress and areas that we still need to continue to promote um, and the concept of moving from deterrence to compellence. So from a culture to a culture where we're really attracting workers who understand that if you are here to uphold humanitarian principles, um, this is our vision, these are our values, um, and that it's really embedded into um, the efforts that we are, are doing for effective humanitarian actions. And, and also this concept of, of bundling. So you've got actions that are part of a complete uh, program um, to make sure that we're really reaching those most, most vulnerable and, and doing... Um, designing programs that are appropriate for the culture in context that we're working in. Thanks. Thanks, Wendy. Um, and last word to you, Anne-Marie. Um, what would be your one priority for us today? Quite simply, that if your organization um, does not have um, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse reports, you, have, you must assume that you have an issue. Um, and that your mechanisms are not are not working. Um, so um, to reflect on that, um, and and to do proactive detection, discuss with your field teams, discuss with um, affected populations as to why uh, those reports are are not coming. Um, and and uh, the second point of that, leaders really must. Um, the tone from the top really must be that we accept and we encourage reporting. Um, and it's only in that way um, and, and in changing the culture in that way that we'll be able to have an open dialogue with affected uh, populations moving forward. Thank you. So thank you all of you for, for those fantastic insights and I guess also for just the inspiration in terms of really moving forward on this agenda. Um, 
I also want to thank all of the co-sponsors who put this together, uh, OCHA, Clear Global, CAFODS, the Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response, UNICEF and, and World Vision. And lastly, a final plug. Um, uh, we heard from Clear Global in terms of their upcoming research that's just about to be published that really um, sounds like it puts a really um, important emphasis on the experience of, of survivors. Um, um, and as I mentioned in the opening, um, we've also just published with um, Humanitarian Practice Network um, a whole raft of different experiences and insights on this with a range of different experts, some of whom you've heard from today, but others as well on, um, on their experiences at both global and national levels. But um, we're out of time. So thank you all very much, particularly those online um, and those that could join us in the room. And I wish you uh, a very successful remaining time at ECOSOC. Thanks to all of you in the room and great to see you in, in person. Thank you. <laughs>